So we're looking at Daniel part 5 this week, and we're looking at Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. And the, the way that I want to start it off is by reading through a psalm that I believe summarizes this part of Daniel. And in fact, I believe it summarizes a whole portion of the book of Daniel. So it's Psalm chapter 2, and we're going to read from the message version. I love the way the guy writes about it. It, it, It's very strong language. So read it with me on the board behind me. This is how it starts, Psalm chapter 2. Why the big noise, nations? Why the mean plots, peoples? Earth leaders push for position. Demagogues and delegates meet for summer talks. The God deniers, the Messiah defiers. Let's get free of God. Cast loose from Messiah. Heaven-throned God breaks out laughing as he watches this from heaven. At first, he's amused at their presumption. Then he gets good and angry. Furiously, he shuts them up. Don't you know there's a king in Zion? A coronation banquet is spread for him on the holy summit. Let me tell you what God said next. God, after looking at the world, looking at the governments, the leaders, the rulers, deciding how they're going to rule this world, he says, who do you think you are? Then he turns to his son. This is a messianic psalm. In other words, a psalm was written before the time of Jesus, but written looking through the corridor of time to where Jesus was going to be on earth. And he turns, God turns and he looks to his son and he speaks to him. And this is what he says, you're my son and today is your birthday. What do you want? Name it. Nations as a present, continents as a prize. You can command them all to dance for you. You're the boss. You can do what you want with this world, he says. Command them to dance for you. Or throw them out with tomorrow's trash. He's kind of bringing a bit of perspective here. He says, Jesus, this is your world. You can do what you want. I'm going to give it to you. Do whatever you want with it, he says. Then he turns back to the earth. And he says, so, rebel kings, use your heads. Upstart judges, learn your lesson. Worship God in adoring embrace. Celebrate in trembling awe. Kiss Messiah. Your very lives are in danger, you know. His anger is about to explode. But if you make a run for God, you won't regret it. If you make a run for God, if you say, God, I need you, I'm coming to you, you won't regret it. It's amazing because it seems as though God asks Jesus, he says, what do you want? What do you want with these nations? I'll give them to you. Incredibly, fast forward a couple of hundred years, Jesus is on the earth, and the devil takes him to a high place to tempt him, and the devil asks him the same questions. Jesus, look at this earth. Look at the nations of this earth. Look at the glory of this earth. I'll give it to you if you'll just worship me. And Jesus says, the Bible says, the Word of God says, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And I almost picture Jesus as God, God the Father asked Him. He says, what do you want to do with this earth? What do you want? Do you want them to dance? Do you want to take them? Do you want a, a continents? Do you want nations? And I almost picture Jesus in humility saying, they are mine, but not yet. I'm going to take them in humility. There will be no pride in my conquest. And Jesus in humility comes to earth. Jesus in humility is put on the cross. Jesus in humility uh, is put into the grave. And Jesus in victory rises. And now the nations are his footstool. 
and becoming his footstool. One day, every nation, every king, every ruler will bow the knee before Jesus Christ. So with that as a pretext, let's go into Daniel 4. That's good stuff, eh? You know what I say? You can't go wrong if you start with Jesus. It really is about him. If we go through this book of Daniel, and I've been listening to the podcast over the last four weeks just to make sure that I'm on track when I came to preach, and I hope that if you do miss a Sunday or miss a Saturday evening that you're catching up with the podcast online, the, the thing that emerges is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Didn't I sound like a first-class preacher right there? The doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Okay, very simply, that means the core belief that God is in control of everything. That's the doctrine, the core belief of the sovereignty. God is in control of everything. That's what emerges out of the book of Daniel. I love it. Let's have a look. Daniel chapter 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, this, this book of, okay, we're going to read it just now. <laughs> By the time we get to the end of Daniel chapter 4, one of the key figures, Nebuchadnezzar, his story comes to an end. Today we're going to finish reading about Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel keeps going, but Nebuchadnezzar comes to an end. And, and this chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar seems to be the one speaking or the one relaying the accounts. So he writes in 4 verse 4, I Nebuchadnezzar was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace, living a good life. I saw a dream that made me afraid. Hang on. Haven't we seen this movie before? Didn't we just go through this two weeks ago? Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Funny, it happens again. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of all of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. At least he gave them a head start this time, and he told them the dream. So I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Daniel named Belteshazzar was the chief of the magicians. Now, this is very interesting to me. This wasn't the first time this, is, this had happened to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, right? It's not the first time he had a scary dream. It's not the first time that he called the magicians. It's not the first time he had encountered Daniel interpreting his dreams. Let me ask you this. Why didn't he skip the other guys and go to, straight to Daniel. Daniel was numero uno dream interpreter in Babylon. Nobody could do it better than him. Why didn't Nebuchadnezzar go straight to Daniel? Why did he first go to those four groups of people? Enchanters, magicians, Chaldeans, astrologers. Why? Because in Nebuchadnezzar, there was a fear of the truth. He knew that Daniel would no doubt cut straight to the point and tell him the truth, and he wasn't sure that he was ready for that. How many times isn't that the case in our own lives? Where we're faced with a situation, we're faced with a question, with a fear, and we go somewhere for answers. Where is the first place we go? 
Let's hear it. Who said Google? You're spot on. The first place we go is Google. And if you search for long enough, you'll find the answer you're looking for. You know, it's sometimes entertaining to just type in three words, why does my dog, and see the auto-suggestions that come up. Why did my girlfriend, why are my kids, <laughs> and sometimes it's quite sad, but mostly it's pretty funny. But what that tells us is that people are asking questions about Google. I mean, not about Google, through Google. You know what's amazing to me is that we use, just as a little matter of interest, we use Google AdWords as a church. In other words, we advertise our church on Google. Now, now that kind of advertising is not push advertising like a mailer that goes into a post box. It's a response-oriented ad, uh, form of advertising. In other words, people are asking, where is there a church? They're looking for a church on Google. And we're getting a huge number of hits, thousands of hits every month. People are looking for church. Isn't that an encouraging sign? Let me ask, just by show of hands, who actually landed up at this church through an internet search? A good few hands. Good. Well done. Thank you, Google. <laughs> but for many other problems in life, Google is not going to help us. Some people go a little bit further, like King Nebuchadnezzar did. They're looking for help. They're looking for answers, so they'll read the horoscope. Instead of looking at their calendars to see, all right, what's coming up this week? They'll pull out a horoscope. All right, what's coming up this week? Uh, tall, dark, handsome stranger. Oh. <laughs> or we'll take it a step further and go to a psychic. Or go to tarot card readings. That kind of thing. Friends, let me just tell you, that stuff is bad. The Bible says throughout the Old Testament, it says, why do you go to astrologers? Why do you look to the stars for help and for answers when you can look to the one who created the universe? That's it. It's not just a bad idea to go to horoscopes, fortune tellers, and psychics. There's a good Afrikaans word, which is, which is one of the languages in South Africa. It's called chril. Whenever I see one of those cards for a psychic fair or something like that. I get the thrills because it's not just a bad idea. It's not just a bit of harmless fun. It's dangerous. There are spiritual elements involved in that that you're allowing to interfere with your life. Don't do it. It's not the right thing to do. It's dangerous. Don't do it. Cut it out. You're not going to get the truth there. Nebuchadnezzar tried with the astrologers, the magicians, all those guys, same group of people. And at last, Daniel comes in. Friends, if you're a Christian this morning, and even if you're not a Christian, I highly recommend this for you, is that the first thing you do when faced with a situation is you pray to Him who knows all things. And then you open the Bible. If you're new at the Bible and you don't know where to turn or where to read or how to work it, Maybe you've, just, maybe you've never had a paper Bible and you've got it on the smartphone. You don't know what buttons to press. What, are, what do all these things mean? You, you come and speak to an elder at church. Elders are men and women who have been put in authority and in a position where they protect the sheep, the flock, the people within the house of God. So come to the elder. When they come and stand in the front after the service, come and say, listen, I, I need you to just pray for me. I've got a situation with work. I need wisdom. Look at some scriptures. 
Show me, is there any, any principle from God that I can put, apply to this situation? Nebuchadnezzar calls on Daniel. Now, Daniel is, a, is for us, is very inspirational. He's, he really is a role model for us. So we watch his behavior through the book of Daniel, and we see where we can apply it for our life. Now, firstly, this is an interesting thing. When Nebuchadnezzar calls Daniel, if first he calls him Belteshazzar. Then he says, in Daniel, the chief of my magicians, in whom there is the spirit of the gods, many gods. Now, Daniel could have come in and said, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, we've gone through this before. My name is Daniel, okay? D-A-N-I-E-L, not Belteshazzar. Let's get it right. Secondly, I might be the chief of the magicians, but I'm not a magician. I'm a believer in God, okay? I don't do that funky stuff. Thirdly, it's not the spirit of the gods in me. It's the spirit of the God, the God most high. He could have come with that kind of uh, sense of justification, that sense of righteousness, but he doesn't. He ignores those things, and with humility, he comes to serve. Friends, you and I are living in an evil world run by people, principalities, and powers who are bent on destruction, bent on domination, and we so often feel like we need to be raising fists against them, but, but we watch Daniel, and he comes in with humility, a spirit of humility, and it's that humility that brings him to promotion. Incredible. So at last, Daniel comes in, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar explains the vision, explains the dream that he had to Daniel. This is what he says, Daniel 4. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. This is a pretty majestic tree. This is the tree in his vision. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, and he proclaimed and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of the root in the ground, in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Now notice how the, the language changes here. Instead of referring to the tree, it refers to him. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion, in other words, what he eats, be with the beasts in the grass of the field. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the Holy One, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills and sets it over the lowliest of men. This was the dream that had got Nebuchadnezzar terrified. Daniel listens to the dream and is dismayed. His face drops and he's quiet for the time. Nebuchadnezzar prompts him and he says, Come, Belteshazzar, we've been through this before. Spill the beans. What's it all about? Go ahead and tell me. And, and, and Daniel, he could have said, Well, I've warned you before. We've had conversations before, but he says, Oh, king. If only this dream was for your enemies. If only this was for your enemies. Then he proceeds to explain what it is. 
In 4 verse 22, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with beasts of the field. You will be made to eat grass like an ox. Isn't that something? On all fours, eating grass like an ox. And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time are going to pass over you till you know, O king, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Sovereignty of God. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots in the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time you know that heaven rules. This was a warning. This was bad news for King Nebuchadnezzar. This was quite disturbing. That's why he was afraid. He knew it probably had to do with him. He wasn't stupid. Daniel says to him, but king, it can be avoided. You don't have to go through this. There's an incredible softness in Daniel's heart. He says, let me read it to you. He says, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. In other words, king, you're sinful. You're not good. You've brought oppression to my people. You've dominated nations. You oppress people. And you're, so he says, break off your sins and break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar. And we don't get to see how Nebuchadnezzar responds to that, but 12 months of time pass by, and after 12 months, he goes up to the roof of his palace, and he surveys his kingdom. He looks out, and as he looks, he sees these beautiful, ornate temples that he's built to foreign gods. As he looks out, he sees not the bunch of roses that he brought for his wife, but the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. He looks at all of this, and as he looks, a bubble of pride starts to form within the depths of his being and fills up and works its way up his body as he looks across this empire, this estate, works its way into his throat, into his mouth, and this bubble of pride comes out of his mouth in these words. Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty. These words come out of his mouth. This bubble of pride starts coming out of his mouth. And it's almost as though a cosmic hand with a pin reaches from heaven and pops that bubble. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from men. Your dwelling will be with beasts. You will be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time will pass until you know the Most High rules the kingdom of men. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from the men, ate grass like an ox. His body was wet until his hair grew as long as an eagle's feathers, and his nails were like a bird's claws. You can picture him shriveling up and crawling onto the ground and losing his mind, insanity becoming him for seven periods of time. 
humbled by the hand of God. James chapter 4 says that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Now, in my household, if I'm sitting down and one of my kids, Judah, my little two-and-a-half-year-old, or Michaela, my five-year-old, if they're up to nonsense, I might give them a look. I might just uh, frown at them. I might say, hey, cut that out. I might say a few words. If I get off my chair, opposition is coming. Fear fills their eyes. I'm going to oppose that activity that they're doing. Pride is what God opposes. He will not stand for it. He will not settle for it. He will not sit for it. He opposes the proud. What's amazing is that it wasn't the sin of desecrating Jerusalem, destroying the people of God, trying to indoctrinate them into the worship of false gods. It wasn't the fact that he had plundered God's holy temple with the sacred articles and put them into the temple of false gods. It wasn't any of those sins that God was opposing him for. It was the sin of pride that God opposed him. He warned him, and then he opposed him. King Nebuchadnezzar compared himself to the rest of the world, and, and all he saw was this man of majesty, this man of power, this man who had built this incredible empire. He did not look upon God and see what is happening in true perspective. C.S. Lewis gives a great quote for humility, and this is what he said, A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down... It is impossible to look up. Many people will say that humility, if it's the opposite of pride, is thinking nothing of yourself or perhaps thinking less of yourself. Let me give you a good definition for humility. Humility is simply thinking accurately of yourself. And the way we are able to think accurately of ourselves is if we compare ourselves with God. Carrie and I, Carrie, my wife, has been watching some reruns of The Dog Whisperer. Do you know that show? This guy, Caesar Milan, he's brilliant with dogs. He rehabilitates dogs with bad attitudes and sorts them out, and he just knows, he knows how they tick. He's like a dog psychologist, so he just sorts them out, ship shape. So it's a very entertaining show. I don't, I don't plan to watch it, but I land up just looking over Carrie's shoulder and watching her. Then every time after an episode, I, I have to take my dog for a walk. <laughs> so I t- I take my dog. Anyway, last week, we watched an episode where he was rehabilitating a chihuahua. 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 Do you know that dog? If you don't know it, it's very small. It's just a little bit bigger than a squirrel, but without the appeal of a fluffy tail. <laughs> little thing. And uh, this chihuahua was very badly behaved. He, he, they actually called him the demon dog because he wouldn't let anybody sit next to his owner, the lady. Uh, he wouldn't let anybody sit next to him. He would flip out. Those bulging eyes would pop out, and he would just snap and snarl and go crazy. This little thing. So the, it was so bad that they called Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer, to come and sort out the, the little guy. So uh, he comes, and he sits on the, on the sofa next to the woman. And as he gets closer to her, the dog starts manifesting, and it starts freaking out. So it starts snapping. Those eyes bulge. You see the whites of its eyes, and it just starts the lips curl back. You can see it why they call it a demon dog. 
And uh, you can see the lady starting to get tense. And uh, as the dog starts snapping, Caesar Milan does something very interesting. Takes his two fingers and he pins it down by the neck because it's a chihuahua. <laughs> pins it down, he says, it's okay, everything's okay, it's fine, this is good, this is good. The dog's freaking out, like trying to spin around, the eyes popping, froth is coming out, the lady's a bit nervous. And he says, everything's okay, and he just pins it down like this. Calm as anything. He doesn't shout at it. He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't beat it off the couch. Nothing like that. Boop. <laughs> Everything's okay. Dog's freaking out. And eventually it calms down. He humbled the chihuahua. He caused it to submit. He brought perspective to the chihuahua. <laughs> Showed it what it really is. I love that. No big display of force. No thunder from heaven. No getting out the whips or anything like that. Boop. And in this instance of God and Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's standing on the top. And in his pride, snarling against God, God says, all right. <laughs> just seven periods of time, Nebuchadnezzar. Let's just sort you out quick. Defined period of time. Not forever, just a little bit of time that God humbles him to show him what's happening. Perhaps you feel God's fingers around your neck. Perhaps you're squirming in life. Things aren't the way they used to be. Perhaps you would agree with me in saying that it seems that our nation is going through a time of humbling. Where God has pinned it down and says, all right, we need to just spend a bit of time like this. It's for a defined period of time, but we have to go through it. And it's not like God is furious or having a tantrum from heaven. It's as calm as... Carries on chatting to Jesus. That's perspective, right? I think it's a great picture. How do we know if we're living with pride in our life? Because if we are, it's a guarantee that God is not going to put up with it for too long because we know He opposes the proud. Pride is this insidious thing that creeps into our lives. Especially, let me say this, the longer you become a Christian or the more moral you are, in other words, the better behaved you are, and the devil's not going to tempt you with drugs, sex, or rock and roll, he's going to tempt you with pride. That's his silver bullet. It's amazing when it, when it talks about Nebuchadnezzar being on the roof, it says, and he answered, is not this the great Babylon? Who was he talking to? Who was asking him questions? Doesn't say, but I suspect it was the demon, prince of demons, the prince of lies, the prince of pride, the one who got kicked out of heaven so fast it looked like a bolt of lightning because of his pride. That's where the devil is going to come, with, its, with a voice that tempts us to pride. That's what he tried to do with Jesus. All of this can be yours. Look how beautiful it is. How do we know if we've got pride lurking in us? How do we know if there isn't that bubble of pride working its way up in, in the depths of our being? I've got a few points that I want us to look through quickly and uh, see what we've got there. Number one, pride compares. Comparison is a sure indicator of pride. 
We're only happy when we've compared ourselves to something else and we're better. Our pleasure comes from this comparison and the fact that, the fact that we've come out at number top, number one. Humility, on the other hand, praises. It's difficult to compare and praise. If you find yourself comparing yourself to other people, to other things, you compare your looks, compare your job, compare your work ethic, perhaps you're the hardest working person in your office and you compare yourself to the others and you're furious with them because they're not getting their job done, that's pride. It's unpleasant to work in that situation, sure. It's inefficient, it's not right. But pride is going to get the better of you even though you're the one who's working the hardest. What do you do? Find opportunities to praise, to praise what others are doing, and to praise God for what He's done in you. As long as we praise, it lifts our gaze to Him, and it helps us to stop being proud. So pride compares, humility praises. Number two, pride is callous, but humility is compassionate. And I love this with, with Daniel. He had every opportunity to be callous or to be judgmental or to have a righteous indignation for the super spiritual toward Nebuchadnezzar. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, you're reaping what you sow, my friend. You don't think you can get away with this forever. But with compassion, he says, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, if only this was for your enemies. How is our speech toward other people? How is our thinking toward other people? Have we grown hard-hearted? Are we callous? That's a sure indicator of pride. Choose compassion, rather. Ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, Holy Spirit, I've lost any kind of joy, any kind of compassion. I'm worried I'm getting proud. Holy Spirit, change me from within. Number three, pride pushes. It elbows. It tramples to get ahead. Whereas humility is patient. You know, there's the saying in the world, nice guys finish last. Many times it seems true. And the, and the ones who are proud, the ones who are ambitious are the ones who get ahead. With God, that's not the case. We patiently wait for Him to lead us, for Him to guide us, for Him to promote us. Because promotion comes from the Lord. Not from our pride, not from our earthly efforts. There is a time where we need to be patient and say, right, Lord, I want to move on in this, but I've, I'm going to wait for you. I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on you. As soon as you move your head in that direction, I'm going to, I'm going to gap it. I'm going to move it, but I'm waiting for you. Lastly, pride avoids the truth. Because within pride, we know in our heart of hearts, if we examine ourselves, that things aren't right. So there will be, that we'll want to avoid the truth. Like our children, if they know they've done something wrong, but they're, they're proud in it, they avoid eye contact. You know, they just keep looking past you. But humility embraces the truth. It seeks out the truth. And tr the truth is going to cut, friends. It's going to hurt. It is. That's why pride avoids it. But humility says, all right, let me have it. One of the most important things that we need to be doing in our lives is reflecting, self-reflection, considering our lives, considering our days. Say, Lord, test me. See if there is any anxious way in me, any deceptive way in me. Am I avoiding the truth in any way? 
Let it work in me. Let it do that surgery. Let it cut out that pride. Let it pop that bubble if necessary. Look for the truth in your own heart. And we need those times of reflection because it's in those quiet moments, those still moments, that we hear truth, that we see truth, that the Holy Spirit is able to bring it to us. So perhaps you have been humbled. Perhaps you're in a moment now. Perhaps you're going to go into a moment in the future where God is going to pin you down for a period of time, where He's going to chop off the branches, where the fruit that you enjoyed sharing with people around you is going to be cut off, where you're not able to provide, where you're not able to love, where you're not able to be admired and be enjoyed. And perhaps it's going to be a time of obscurity, a time of confusion. You're going to lose your reason. You know what I love about this vision? is that the, 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 the stump wasn't uprooted, but the stump remained in the ground. When we have no fruit, focus on the root. Dig deep into God. When we find that God has pushed us into obscurity for a time to humble us, and we will all go through that, friends, it's a guarantee that's a time for us not to try and force fruit, to force something to happen, but to say, all right, Lord, you've put this band of bronze around me, but you haven't stopped my roots from growing. In this time, I'm going to dig deep. I'm going to soak myself in the Word of God. I'm going to allow the truth of the Word of God to bring nutrients so that the root continues to grow. Over those seven periods of time, the root would have continued to grow. If you feel like you're in that place, don't worry, it's not forever. Beforehand, God even says, this is for seven periods of time. It's defined. There's nothing you can do to make it longer or shorter, but I think you can go into more of them if you don't learn your lesson the first time. Don't panic, it'll come to an end. And it'll come to an end with grace. And with goodness and kindness. God is not just sovereign and harsh, sovereign and powerful, but God is sovereign and good. He is sovereign and kind. He is sovereign and patient. He is sovereign and gracious to you. Because He loves us. He loves you, friends. Let's read the end of the story. The end of Nebuchadnezzar's story. At the end of the days... Daniel 4, verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, interesting to me that he doesn't use the word king, Nebuchadnezzar, I, Nebuchadnezzar, a man who for the last seven periods of time have been on my all fours, eating grass like an ox, a man who obviously had no control of my own mind or my own sanity, I, Nebuchadnezzar, who was fortunate enough to rule this entire empire but have been humbled, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. Look at the clarity that he has now. Instead of referring to the Son of the Gods, or, or, or the Gods, or the Spirit of the Gods, which was in Daniel, or the God of Daniel, he says, I blessed the Most High. He knew what had happened, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion, is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the most hosts of heaven 
and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Or why have you done this? At the same time that my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. How about that? His majesty and his splendor, his good looks, his kingdom comes back to him. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. Listen to this. And still more greatness was added to me. How about that? How about that for the grace of God? We go through this humbling and still more goodness is added to him. Listen to how he ends. These are the last recorded words of Nebuchadnezzar in the, in the book of Daniel. Listen to this. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Amazing. I, I land up almost loving Nebuchadnezzar. Not because of anything he's done. He was a rotten, rotten king. But I land up loving him because of what God did through him. And that his final words have nothing to do with his empire, his kingdom, but everything to do with God. Let those be our closing words, friends. When our last words are recorded, let it be like that. You know, I think back to this chihuahua. At the end of the show, you see Caesar Milani sitting on the couch, the lady sitting next to me, and the chihuahua is in Caesar's lap, and he's holding him like this. And the chihuahua's cuddled up there, and he's, and he's tickling him. And friends, it might seem silly, but that's kind of how I would like to be with God. Curled up in his hands with him stroking my neck. Justin, you're such a good boy. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. You've been so good. I know it seems silly, but I like that picture. It's humble. I'm loved. I'm loving him. I'm safe, I'm protected. When he sends me to fetch the tiny little newspaper because I've got such a tiny little mouth, I'll go and do it so proudly. He tells me what I need to do, I'll do it. That's where I want to be. What about you?